All right. All right. Well, so last week you uh, had some kind of press event at uh, that uh, store, the uh, walking guy, whatever the name of the place is. <laughs> it wasn't a press event. It was a um, it was a small press day, which is that doesn't mean I'm talking to small newspapers. It means I'm selling comics I've made um, on the small press that they use to make comics. Oh. Um, and um, yeah. Uh, so that's what I did. So I wasn't there. Sorry about that. Well, did you have a nice time? Yes, I did. Thank you. It was very nice. I, I spent the day with the author of this game about Spectrum. No, a book about Spectrum games, Dan Whitehead. Uh, he, he made, he's made two game. Uh, he's made two books called Specky Nation, both of which I like. Ah, even Well, though... actually, I say that. I've only read, I've read the first one and a little bit of the second one. The rest of it might just be like racial slurs. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's not though. He's a very nice man, and I'm yeah, fairly I mean, confident that the rest of the book will continue on as much as the bit that I've read does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, p- people who talk about the spectrums and stuff are above racial slurs. They only like talk shit about the other platforms of the time, like. Uh, just add a sentence like, and this is why the C64 was a piece of shit. And then he continues with his story. Yes, although <laughs> Dan wouldn't do even that. He's a very nice person, and I, I get the sense that he's, he's not uh, uh, loyal to any one computer in that way. But he may be. Maybe if I quiz him further. Anyway, yeah. that was what I was doing. There was other people there also that I hadn't met, but he was the one person I already knew, sort of. And, um, yes, we had, a, we had a nice day. Thank you mm. for asking. Yeah. What did you do while I was away? Uh, I think I slept. Hooray! <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I because we haven't done a show in a couple of weeks, I have a, like a, a million billion topics. Yeah. And uh, one of them is, you know, Sense Eight. It's. I uh, remember Sense Eight. I watched about half of it. Yeah. So it wasn't very popular, but it did have like a rabid fan base. So it was supposed to be, well, who knows how long, but they made two seasons on Netflix and uh, then it was cancelled. But the creators really wanted to finish it off. And I don't know if it was partially funded by Netflix or, it, or if it was completely self-funded, but they made a finale, which is uh, two and a half hours long, that uh, finishes up the entire story. So I watched it and uh, it's, uh, I'm a bit mixed on it. Because mm-hmm. the po- on a positive note, I mean, the most important thing in anything is that when you leave it, you're left with like a positive feeling. And that's the case here. Like uh, the very, very end of this episode was really nice. It left me on like a high. And that's good. The problem yeah. is for the majority of it, I was, it was kind of uneven. It's uh, built into basically three major acts, three major locations that they uh, it takes place in. So it's like, I don't know, three episodes in one. So it kind of builds to an action uh, set piece and then it kind of slows down and then it builds to the next action set piece and does that three times. And mm-hmm. the way it transitions between these set pieces is kind of terrible because the sense of momentum and f- like forward motion feeling it just plummets it's mm. like i was just sitting there like restless 
as it felt like nothing was happening for a while before it started like building up again and that happened a couple of times so it feels kind of uneven and you can also tell that this was uh, more cheaply made because there's especially in like the very last action sequence there's like continuity errors like there's a at one point two guys are shooting at a van uh, and sparks start flying off the van before they start shooting mm. and when the stuntman actually starts shooting the sound effects and the sparks appearing on the van are out of sync with each other oh dear yeah that's e- that's easy enough to fix yeah <laughs> the worst example of this that i've ever seen where i just thought do another take like just do another take it surely can't be too expensive was uh, honestly was the music video to Mr. Blobby, the single. Um, I won't go into the full history of Mr. Blobby if you don't know it, but he was a man in a suit and it was a Blobby character. And in his music video, there's a joke where he plays a synthesizer and he plays four big notes on it. And on the last one, the synthesizer kind of explodes because it's such a big, loud note. And unfortunately, in the video, the synthesizer explodes and folds up before Mr. Blobby has even put his hands down to play the note. Just do another take, guys. Just do it. Another take. Easy. Yeah, and it becomes visually confusing in this because it has... They've set up like fancy, really fluid, elaborate camera moves as you'd expect from uh, like uh, the Wachowskis. And then you have like just continuity errors and it doesn't mm. match the audio and visual. It's like, were you really that strapped for time? <laughs> because yeah. there must have been... and. In general, the the choreography or like maybe the staging of how they set up, like what the script says the action should be and how they play it out, I didn't like it. Like uh, in the same action sequence, some uh, enemies kind of get the drop on uh, our heroes and they kind of start shooting them in the back, and every shot they shoot at them misses, and then all the heroes run into cover. And then kind of five seconds later, the enemies shoot at them again. And then one of the heroes is hit. It's like, why couldn't you have done it? So when the enemies got to drop on you, that's when the person got hit. It, mm. it was just... It felt very sloppy. And in, like, a set piece that is kind of reliant on just visual storytelling and action stuff, it, it was so noticeable. Yeah. Um, and they, they haven't done it this poorly I don't think in any of the movies or in any of the earlier seasons. It was just in this finale where it felt like, well, this is this is bad in a way <laughs> it shouldn't be. <laughs> that is strange because some of what you're talking about is obviously budgetary, but some yeah. of what you're talking about is just a, another editing pass. And I don't know, maybe this isn't true. Maybe I'm being naive here, but I feel as if a Netflix release date is surely a softer thing than a than a a worldwide cinema campaign where it's got to go out on a certain day and people have prepared their screens and they've shifted Avengers over to that fil- uh, that screen to get ready-, ready for it and things. Yeah, but it this might just be evidence of how tight the budgets mm. were. Where it's like, well, we filmed this shot and we have no more takes. We have to leave now. We can't afford any a second more here. That's kind of how I assume it played out. And Well... <laughs> Me too. It's just that it sounds uh, some of the stuff you're saying like could be fixed in editing, especially the syncing of the sound effects. I mean, come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, that 
And and the bit where they, you know, the bit where you were saying that it would be more streamlined to have them be shot in that first moment than in the second. Mm. Great, do that then. Cut from the one to the other, and nobody will ever notice the difference. Yeah, <laughs> but they didn't. <laughs> so yeah, I just kind of wonder what they were thinking. Um, yeah. And yeah, anyway. I mean, there's been so many TV shows um, like this that have had like a couple of seasons and then been cancelled and um, not had a satisfactory wrap up to their story. And I feel like this, this one, this finale mm. is probably the best I've seen a cancelled series come back and wrap itself up. Well, the and- one that I, you know, can't help but want to compare it to is, mm. um, is you know, the Joss Whedon one, um, Firefly. Yes, because that did the same thing one season axed movie that finished it off um weirdly muddled like whether or not the movie is satisfying or unsatisfying depending on who you talk to Mm. um did you watch those yeah uh i watched uh, the movie twice i saw it in the cinema thought it was it's fine and then I saw yeah. people being like fanatical fans for it. And I felt like, okay, I, I better watch this again and see if I missed anything. And the second time I watched it, I didn't enjoy it at all. <laughs> and was this, but was this after, like, had you seen the series or not? Yes, I did. I watched the yeah. series uh, as it was uh, like coming out. All right, yeah. 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 So this then wins over that. This is better than that. Uh, yeah. I, I like the original series much more than Firefly. And I like this uh, finale better than uh, Serenity. But right. they're still, it's still not super satisfying. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that I would like, if someone hasn't seen Sense8, that it's actually worth starting to watch it. But I don't yeah. know. I mean... I still hold to my opinion that Sense8 is the best thing uh, the Wachowskis has done since The Matrix because everything they've done since The Matrix is uh, kind of crap. <laughs> is it? I think yeah. I've only really watched this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've watched uh, everything they put out and it's like, I guess Cloud Atlas was good. Oh yeah, I like Cloud Atlas. I'd forgotten that that was theirs. Yeah, so it's like... The Matrix, Cloud Atlas, and then this on third place, and then like very far down, I guess, on fourth mm. place, you get the Speed Racer. <laughs> oh no, I like Speed Racer. Yeah. <laughs> that was them as well, wasn't it? I'm gonna have to watch, I'm gonna have to rewatch that because I remember being in just such just so mesmerized by how much I didn't know what I was even looking at when I watched Speed Racer, but I knew that it was pretty. And I bet that's the sort of thing where I, if I could get a bit deeper into it with a re- rewatch, maybe I would get it more. Yeah, I saw Speed Racer in the theater uh, yeah. in like a screen for like 500 people. And there were like uh, four people there, <laughs> including me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's Let's enough. move on because we've got so many topics. We need to get through them nice and fast because I'm afraid I've brought some topics with me as well. Oh, my God. In fact, I, let me tell you one of them now. Let me get this out of the way and done. Have you heard about this morning's Aliens Colonial Marines news? Yes. <laughs> so, cor- correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but the story seems to be that Aliens Colonial Marines, famously a bad game, and one of the key reasons it was bad was because of its terrible broken AI. Um, someone, People have been trying to mod it for years, because gamers always will, to try and make it an acceptable game. And then, after... Five years of that. Today, someone thinks to open the .ini file. Now, I don't know much about .ini files, but I've edited them, so I know that they are not 
hacking. They are a file you can open in tech in a you know notepad, which is in the folder next to the exe. It's usually same name as the exe dot ini or similar. And it's just switches, right? So it's like, here's the resolution the game will default open in. And you can you can rewrite that. Uh, here's, you know, will there be V-Sync? Things like, just things that sometimes you would do from the options menu of the game. But a little bit deeper than that, stuff that perhaps they've left off that's for the developers rather than you. But you can edit them and change the parameters. And someone just found out that the word, <laughs> that there's a there's a switch for the enemy AI which says, and it's something like the enemy is tethered to a certain spot. And they just misspelled tether. They put T-E-A-T-H-E-R. And this guy found out that if you just delete that A to make it be spelled right, suddenly the game is, like, quite good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they made a whole AI system, and just because they didn't spell tether right, <laughs> it's the AI weren't programmed to use the actual AI that they made for the game. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of equivalent to the time they, you know, switched off, famously switched off the the lighting in uh, Watch Dogs, except they can't have meant to do this unless. So there's two possibilities here. Number one is that it was a spelling error and nobody on the team could figure out what the hell was wrong. But that, I don't fully buy that because you'd think they'd go at some point like, yeah, we don't really know why this isn't the game we made. You'd think someone would have mentioned that. So that's option one. Option two, actually there's three options. Option two is, and this is, quite a likely one the game was finished the spelling error was in there they couldn't figure out what was wrong so this being a game studio they fired everyone <laughs> and and brought in a whole new team and that new team of course had no like con context for how the coding had been put together what could be wrong what they'd used for what and they didn't spot it for that reason that's option two option three which is less likely but i quite like it and so i'm not saying that this is what happened because if i did that would constitute some kind of an accusation, and I'm not saying that. But wouldn't it be fun if upon learning that the team was about to be disbarred, as is standard, you know, and we all hate it, wouldn't it be fun if someone just slipped in an extra extra digit, an extra character into that any file that they knew would break the entire game and on their on their way out of the door? Yeah. <laughs> and that didn't happen. That that's not even allegedly. That is simply a fantasy I came up with in my mind. Because I think it would be fun. Probably it's just firing and incompetence all all wrapped up into one big. Box. Yeah, I mean, maybe like people were wondering, like, okay, Gearbox have patched this game multiple times and never fixed this. Mm. Did they not know that someone had made an AI that actually works, and nobody yes. asked him if it's working as intended, or like he made it, noticed that it wasn't working. And he was fired before he was given enough time to like and, I don't know, and check why it's not working. And they haven't, whoever they are, they've not spoken out about it. That's what I find really interesting. Is that because, because it won't be that they don't know. There'll have been someone out there going, I know what's wrong with Aliens Cloning Rears. He might not have known about the A, but he might have known or she might have known about you know, well, would have known that the AI was not doing what it should. And they would have gone, well, it's not my job anymore to fix it. But it's interesting that it's never cut in five years. That game is ancient history now. And like as soon as the other Aliens game came out, it was ancient. Like it was never going to be relevant ever again. So it's interesting that there's never come out in an interview about this, that there should that there is a fully written working once in the studio working AI that 
was completely other than what is being described in the negative reviews of this game and in people's experiences of it. And they must have known. And why didn't they speak out? Is it because they thought it was really funny? <laughs> is yep. it because, well, they're not allowed to because that would be, well, not so much not allowed to. As someone who works like freelance, um, which is a bit like being a game dev because you jump from whoever will hire you. Um, you don't you don't like badmouth a company that you're ever likely to work with again, or or really you kind of you don't badmouth a company unless it's the current zeitgeist is to badmouth that company because they've ripped someone off in a bad way or whatever. Because it's not just that that company won't hire you again; you just might be seen to be the sort of person who might end up talking like that, and so that's that's just not the sort of environment people want. So they don't hire that sort of person. That's why a lot of the people involved in things like GamerGate who want to be game devs, won't be. Um, and that's just the reality, you know. Um, because people hire based on, like, well, we'll, 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 what will this do to the working environment and so on? Well, um, might have been that. Might have been that. Don't know. Yeah. And I, I remembered while you were talking that this is a game that had a season pass. And I know a guy who pre-ordered the game oh. and a season pass. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Yeah, biggest regret of his life. <laughs> oh, well, I mean that's all right then, isn't it? If that's the biggest regret of his life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, let's uh, get through Next this topic. one quickly. Uh, I watched uh, the Purge Four, aka the first Purge in the cinema. Yes, this is the new one. I was unaware that there'd been so much as a the Purge Two. Uh, this is the purge is the film where it's like for twenty four hours. There's no law, right? Yeah, right. And uh, the first movie was just crap. It's people trapped in a house, and some murderers come and try to kill them because it's uh, uh, oh, it's uh, a free for all for twenty four hours. We're allowed to kill anyone, and it's just people trapped in a dark house and with really? some serial killers. Yeah. Oh, what a weird way of approaching a concept like that. You'd think it would be all-out, like, action film type thing. Uh, yeah, well, it was a really cheaply made film. It was a right. cheap, crappy horror film. But because it uh, cost, I don't know, $2 million to make and uh, made uh, its budget back 200 times or something, uh, uh -huh. in with a second movie, uh, Purge 2, colon, Anarchy, they made it a proper movie, so it's um, a trashy film taking place out in the city, and you have people with uh, very good costume designs, like a man uh, with a, drives around with a truck with like a minigun in the back and shoots people. So there you have the concepts kind of expanded out to a city with uh, more interesting characters, and it just resembles a real movie. And then uh, in the third movie, they just made the second movie again. And now in the fourth right. movie, they just made the second movie again. Right. <laughs> and it's, it feels very formulaic now because it's just, well, it's the second movie again, except it's new actors. So, <laughs> so um, once bitten, twice shy, uh, you've now watched four of them. Why? <laughs> because the second movie was really good. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, right. So it's actually... It's once bitten, and this is twice shy now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, before the second movie came out, in the theater, I only saw, like, the trailers for the second movie. And then, based on that, like, before the second movie premiered uh, in the cinema, I saw the first movie. It was so boring. Right. It, it was the kind of movie where you're, like, you find yourself kind of staring blankly off into space, and then, like, oh, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be watching a movie now. What's happening? <laughs> Some people are sneaking around in a dark house, and I don't give a shit. 
And um, I mean, not, none of these movies are great. It's this is the greatest problem with the fourth one. It's just further proof that all four are written by the same person, and it's a person who oh. doesn't have good taste and/or doesn't actually care about making a really good movie. <laughs> He's just has a, a bunch of great ideas, and then instead of like, all right, here's some good ideas. Now, how do I make it into a good movie? Instead, he just kind of starts thinking, well, this is just a crappy horror movie, so I don't give a shit. Let's just put it out like this. So it's like obvious problems with like all of them. That right. third one was really bad. But in, in the fourth one, it's probably the least bad of the films. Um, the second one was uneven, uh, but it had a lot of novelty value because it was like a new concept. It felt like someone was actually being creative and inventive. Fourth yeah. movie is very formulaic and it's just the, does the same things, the same story stuff happens as in the other ones. Right. But the, I was less <clears throat> bored with this than the other ones. So I think it is standalone. So you could watch the fourth one separate from all the other ones. So it's like maybe watch it on Netflix at, at some point, but I'm disappointed that these aren't good enough. Um, these aren't classics. These are trash. Mm. It's someone who just doesn't care enough about actually making a good movie. But you see the concept and the ideas, and it just feels like it, this, this, the actors and the concept deserves better. Yeah. Because it, it is about... Um, a bunch of white supremacist people have taken over America. And as an excuse to act out their oh. racism, uh, they staged this uh, killing spree. And uh, so a, a bunch of people with like fascist outfits and KKK uniforms go out and murder black people. So. <laughs> right, right. So they're trying to go, ah, see... See what's happening in the world today, but unfortunately, they just sort of made a bad film. Uh, yeah, they, they just use the imagery uh, in an yeah. evocative way and don't actually do justice to the concept at all. So it's just it's just trash. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, speaking of trash, I uh, <laughs> I read I, I listened to the audiobook version of um, Trump: The Art of the Deal. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, still, still not sure why a person would do that, but okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, for the longest time, I had the sense to not listen to it, but then mm. the thought hit me, and it was such a bad idea that I felt like, well, I gotta do this now because the I the idea of listening to this it's funny enough, mm. and I just searched for it on like go Google, and like one of the first things that pops up is. Uh, People have pirated it and just put it up on YouTube. Right. And audiobook YouTube piracy, there's a lot of it. Because once you listen to one pirated audiobook on YouTube, you start getting recommendations for many <laughs> other authors. And like, oh, here's another 10-hour clip of like an entire book that's still in print that's only five years old or something. Flipping <laughs> egg. Yeah. It's, yeah well, I'm not in favor of that. Yeah. But... Out of the deal. I mean, if you're going to listen to it, pirating it on YouTube just feels like appropriate. I mean, I, honestly, yeah. Like, ordinarily, I'd be like, no, but presumably Donald Trump gets some money if you buy the book. So don't do that. Yeah, and it's a book from the 80s. So he, whatever money he made, he's already made. So it's like, who gives a crap? And 
I mean, it is... The book is both surprisingly entertaining and tedious at the same time because it is very one-note. It's kind of just Trump bragging about all his business deals. Especially, like, the first hour of the book is the most funny because it's a chapter called A Week in the Life. Not a day in the life of Trump, a week in the life. So it goes through, like... Monday, he gets up and he has a fantastic life. It's very busy, has a great relationship with everyone. He gets a lot of deals done. Tuesday, it's the same thing. Wednesday, it's the same thing. It's just, he's just bragging about how awesome and how much shit he gets down and how busy his life is. And because this chapter goes on for like an hour, it's, it's just like... It's so much in the style of what you'd expect from Trump. It's just, yes, this is exactly him. Like, there's no doubt that the uh, co-author for this was just kind of transcribing him, just kind of sitting there in the room, kind of bragging about himself for hours and hours. (laughs) It's what the co-author has done, because people have said, like, oh, he didn't write, uh, Trump didn't write this. No, it's obviously him. Because no one else would be this obnoxious. He's just <laughs> exactly the same as he is now. <laughs> really? I can see that this book would have been really positive PR for his presidential campaign. Because mm. he, everything he talks about here is just about constantly like how, how fast he gets stuff done. How much he hates mm. like a government red tape and them being slow. And like anyone who reads this... And like then has the choice between stiff people in suits who talk through layers of like carefully crafted PR speak, and then you have this guy, and you have have had this book out for like thirty years. I feel like this was a very good move to put this out thirty years before running for president. So if you're thinking of running for president in thirty years, put mm-hmm. out a book like this because it'll make you look like you're actually competent. <laughs> All right, yeah. I might consider doing that then. Yeah, yeah. So I felt like it, it is a complete waste of time to listen to this. Sure, of course. Yeah, yeah. no, no, no. There was, there was no chance of it being anything other than that. Yeah, but I've uh, noticed <laughs> that. And now this was uh, very positive for his uh, PR image. Like an- anyone who says anything negative about this book, I feel like no, kind of missing the point. This was actually mm. really good for him. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, clearly, I've, you know, in one sense, you could say that every decision he's ever made has been really good for him. Because it worked. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, some things that upset me this week. Okay. So, you know, gigantic corporations in America. Yeah. So AT&T bought Time Warner. And Time Warner owns a bunch of companies like HBO. And when AT&T was kind of justifying their merger with Time Warner for, uh, for like, the Department of Justice or whatever, they said that the prices were going to go down. Even though there's less competition, that means we'll be more effective and prices will go down. So uh, mm. kind of immediately after they bought Time Warner, they raised the prices on all their internet plans. And there <laughs> used to be a mobile plan where you could stream HBO for free. And uh, yeah, they removed that here. So now you have to pay for it on extra and uh, the price went up. Right. And then... AT&T CEOs had a meeting with HBO and they oh. recorded that and transcriptions were released. So the boss of AT&T 
he said that HBO need to change what they're doing because HBO, even though they made, they have like an operating cost of two billion dollars, but they made six billion dollars in profit last year, so they are a very successful company at what they do. So the AT&T boss said that. Also, we need to make more, more money at the end of the day, right? And then uh, the boss of HBO says, yes, uh, w- we do that. And then the AT&T guys said, yes, you do. Just not enough. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he uh, continued here saying that we need hours a day, referring to the time uh, spend, uh, viewers spend watching HBO programs. It's not hours a week. It's not hours a month. We need hours a day. You're you're competing with devices that sit in people's hands that capture their attention every 15 minutes. I want more hours of engagement. Why are hours of engagement important? Important because you get more data and information about the customer that then allows you to do things like monetize through alternative models of advertisement as well as subscriptions, which I think is very, it's a very important play in tomorrow's world. Basically, HBO are done. (laughs) (laughs) He wants them to produce many more shows, Uh. shorter length shows, like 20 minute shows. Yeah. He just, the AT&T bosses, they, they aren't interested in HBO as it is now. They don't see it as a successful business, even though it is. They, they, they're kind of chasing this kind of vague specter of like a wider audience that has a short attention span. Like yeah. HBO has a niche. HBO yeah. does stuff no one else does. Yeah. And people really like that. That's why they have a six billion dollar a year business that's successful. Yeah, yeah. If I was basically, if I think if I was American and I had the option to pick one channel to subscribe to, that would be the one because you know that because because we all know that they make the best American TV. That may not always be true, but it's what we know. It's like a little bit of folk knowledge that HBO are the good American TV people, and that is for a very specific kind of tv and a very specific reason and a kind of sort of grown-up um idea of what tv would be like um yeah changing that is not a good idea for the brand yeah and some of the statements here are just like confusing (laughs) Mm -hmm. you've earned the dynamic amongst your customer base that when you put a new piece of content out there people would try it just because they trust that you're going to be putting out something in front of them that you, they might like. Yeah, for now. We, we now need to figure out how to expand the aperture of it without losing the quality. Okay. Yeah, and like, this is wonderful. I suspect if we're in a situation where we're going to have to be investing heavier, that means there's going to be more work for all of you, and you're going to be working a little bit harder. Oh, God. And he said that... We all know what that sound means. Yeah. Ugh. And he also said that the <laughs> the first year under AT&T is a time HBO employees will be very fond of when they look back on it. But he oh added, my God. it's not going to feel great while you're in the middle of it. Oh, no. <laughs> can I actually, can I say, there is precedent for that that I know about. That's not a completely impossible thing um because that happened to disney um 
there was a there was a time when Disney was taken over by new management from Paramount, and they were the 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 Disney building, the famous Disney building on Dopey Drive, where the, where all the Disney films have been made, Snow White and Bambi and all of that. They just closed that down all of a sudden, and all the animators went, "What the hell? You can't close down di- the Disney building," and they moved them to these like temporary like trailers in a car park somewhere and they went there make a film here and they were and it was horrible and they hated it and while they were there they made the little mermaid and they kicked off the disney renaissance that is like the best time of disney there ever was and so yes they do kind of look back and go like actually it was harsh but it was good um so it can happen but don't be a executive and go like yeah we're gonna make your life hell but you'll thank us don't talk like that yeah especially for an organization that just seems to be doing everything right it's like oh it's running like clockwork it's making all the the money it's doing exactly what it should do uh, year after year it's like ah yeah that's great uh how about we flip this table and just ruin everything you're doing because we we know better (laughs) yeah and one of the things that one of the things that me and Jahan talked about on Serious Disney about Frozen is that we were there making some speculative. Wouldn't it have been better if the film had done this? Or wouldn't it have been better if it was like that? And then we went, well, no, because it's the most successful animated film of all time. So the people in charge are like, thank God we didn't do anything differently. That's HBO right now. Whatever HBO is, it's perfect for itself and for its audience right now. And to just step in and go like, well. I'm the manager of this now, and if I don't put some kind of personal stamp on it, then it'll look like I was weak and didn't do anything. So I'm just going to generally screw everything up, and then if it goes badly, I'll just get a big pay rise and I'll go and work for another company. And meanwhile, we lose something. We lose one of the one of the last remaining intelligent <laughs> TV makers. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a statement. From okay. the boss of C uh, of HBO after this meeting, uh-huh. so I've said more is not better, only better is better because that was the hand we had. I've switched that now you're here to more isn't better, only better is better, but we need a lot more to be even better. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's absolute nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> So that's uh, HBO's uh, new slogan under AT&T, that uh, more isn't better, only better is better, but we need a lot more to be even better. Oh, God. (laughs) AT&T. Yeah. Uh, There is a little bit of hope, though. Okay. Because the Department of Justice wants to try to overturn the merger between uh, Time Warner and AT&T because apparently they oh the, the, the justice department there's like what they there's one more chance to uh, overturn this so they did a court filing and they said uh, that they're gonna try and force them to reverse the merger uh, so okay. they're, they're going to court again to to do this and I think uh, part of this the reason they went and filed this uh, appeal is because AT&T basically just lied and said what they were going to do, and kind of the second they merged, they started doing the opposite to what they said they would. So uh, now there's right. ammunition for the appeal to just say that, well, 
AT&T immediately proved that they lied and it's the merger isn't doing what they said it would. So who knows? Maybe the Justice Department will save the world. Because this, yeah. even though this is just America, this is still a gigantic corporation with effects that can ripple out to the rest of the world. Yeah. Like uh, we not having any good TV shows from HBO anymore. <laughs> yeah, which changes the landscape generally. Like if if... If there had been something a little bit different in, say, 1998, we half of TV might not be awful, like like social contract ruining reality TV that gave us this president, for instance. But in a general set, like even if it hadn't, I'd still be like, a lot of television is really, really awful because of the reality thing when that started. And I wish it hadn't. And it's okay that it did, but I just wish it hadn't. But this is this threatens to take away the kind of TV that you are glad is there, and I wish it doesn't. It's just what, yeah, it's one of those moments. the The world doesn't end because of this, but it's just a shame, and hopefully it doesn't happen. Yeah. And in other corporate acquisition news, this was another Ugh. thing that uh, upset me for a different reason. Okay. Because the news came out that the the uh, company Univision that owns. A lot of sites like Gizmodo, Jezebel, Deadspin, Lifehacker, Splinter, The Root, Kotaki, Earther, Yelopnik, whatever. They're selling all those sites. And they bought them, all of these, in, I think, 2016 or something. And what they did, how they funded this, that's what upset me. Because this is a standard practice that I've seen many times, but it didn't just dawn on me until now how ridiculous this is that this is allowed because what they did they bought these sites for 135 million and they didn't have the money they borrowed the money and what they did was these sites were successful at the time running Mm -hmm. at a profit making good uh, content so this site this company buys all the sites because it was all owned by like Gawker Media. And this debt of 135 million was put on all these websites. So you can apparently, if you have like, oh, I want to buy this company that's successful. So I'm going to borrow 100 million, 135 million and buy them. And now they have to pay the debt that I borrowed to buy them. Oh, that's ever so sneaky. So, so they. Yeah. <laughs> so what they've done is they've because because on the face of it, it seems relatively reasonable that you go, okay, here is a profit making company. I buy that profit making company. I put the debt of the money I use to buy that company into that, so that its profit pays back the debt, which is why, of course, I did it. That makes sense, right? Because you can use that money to pay the it make that that that's why they gave you the loan, so that you would make the money back with that company. But what it means is that the minute you decide not to pay that debt, you can just sell the company. And whoever wants the company gives you a ton of money, takes on debt. The the people who work at the websites, they're the ones who are screwed because they're like, well, we'll just forever have to pay this off, I guess. Yeah, because surprise, surprise. What happened to these uh, successful profit-making companies when they had like over $100 million in debt? Well, they... 
they had to fire people. The quality of their writing went down. They couldn't yeah. run at the same way anymore. And the projected profits that they had, like a stable income, that started going down because they weren't as good and they started losing audience. And now the this company Univision that owned these sites wasn't able to pay off the debt in time. So that's why they're selling them off now because it's like, oh, they're not as profitable as we thought they were. Well, it's because you put the debt on them that ruined the sites. So yeah. they're not as and profitable the is, these are people. These are people who went to business school, right? These are people who understand their job of business. They This was always the plan. They knew this would happen. You don't buy a website thinking... Oh, this will be the next YouTube. This will get bigger and bigger and bigger. No, they usually drop off. So you buy them knowing I can put the debt in that and then sell them on and then put some money in my account. And then that it's it's the same thing as with the AT&T thing. It's like I can put money in this. I can put this imaginary money in this imaginary box, which puts me at the top. And it doesn't matter what's lost. And it doesn't matter. All the, the bad things that happen doesn't matter because I've just put this in this box. And moved on, and that's what my job is. Yeah, and I don't understand that you have to like <laughs> retain the talent and like have people who make quality, so the value is retained. Like, there's mm. like there's a there's a reason people went to these sites and like watch HBO stuff, mm. and, and the people who buy them are just completely seem to be blind to like the qualities of the thing they're buying like they don't understand the thing they're buying they're just yeah. like oh here's a box that generates money mysteriously <laughs> well yeah or this is it i don't know though i'm not yeah. totally convinced i don't know that it's that they don't understand what they're buying i think it's that it doesn't concern them what they're buying mm. they just go it's like it's like if you were a businessman who was really interested well actually i'll give you a specific example there are very few comics left in the UK and there's one and we used to have a thriving business and there's one there's kind of two left there's the one that's just hung on and it's still there and then there's the one where this one businessman who was a pub he was in publishing he was in books he personally liked comics and he missed them so he opened a new comic and that is running that has been a success but that's extremely rare what normally happens is you never find a businessman who's like, oh, I really like this, so I run companies of that. Normally, they go, well, this will make profit at this time. That won't make profit at this time. I'll move these things around. The person who bought those websites probably doesn't work at the company anymore because they thought to themselves, right, well, I'll buy this. Yeah, the, 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 the stock in them or whatever will decrease in five years' time. I won't be here in five years' time because I'll have moved up because of this acquisition to a better job at a different company and they've probably done that and it doesn't doesn't matter you know no they they did they weren't like i'm a fan of these websites so i want to elevate them they were just like yeah that in that box that in that box and it all our stuff goes away this is what's happening to the nhs at the moment you know our stuff goes away because businessmen know to put things in boxes it's pretty gross it's not a big surprise that as we're becoming I, don't, I was about to say as we're becoming more aware of this i feel as if like oh so my generation is the first time that's happened i'm sure people were already aware but maybe there's just something in the air but people are getting more aware of this and we're starting to call it aren't we like late stage capitalism you see that phrase going around that's a bit of a pipe dream i don't think it's going to end anytime soon uh, yeah and it's a bullshit phrase because apparently it's a uh, 
it, it has its origin from the 1960s. And like, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So, what? When's what's the next stage after that? Where? Yeah. When? Where does it start and end? Yeah. <clears throat> That's the thing. It is a bit. Dis- there's there's something quite exciting about seeing um, so much activism and so many protests about things like this. I quite, you know, I remember the Occupy movement that happened for a brief second, didn't it? But then, then you look back and you find out that yeah, that happened in the '60s, and then it just stopped for a while and started again, and and everyone was who did it was thought of as kind of crazy. So like the generation now who's out protesting Trump and so on, and and I love those guys. This is not me disparaging them. I wish that that would be a success, but something tells me, and because I'm one of them, you know, I've been to those protests. Something tells me that those of us who are still acting like that when we're old are going to be treated the way people who are still acting like that when they were old in the 80s because they'd been doing it in the 60s were treated, i.e. long-bearded hippies who are kind of generally made fun of. But we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we do get endless articles about how millennials are ruining the world, so... Yes, yes, <laughs> and that's, that gets ever more... I, <clears throat> that used to be frustrating, now I like it because... The, because we're now at the point where I think there's another about two years until millennials are 40. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a millennial. I come under the millennial uh, just. I'm just in the bracket. And I'll be 40 in a few years. And like, so that, so it's meaningless. Because of course, when they say millennials, they mean like young people. They still mean teenagers, but they're not millennials anymore. And so, yeah, it's just a lot of it's just a lot of silliness. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Dave, how about I buy you into slavery and you have to pay off the the, the money I used to buy you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And in general, like I've seen this in many companies, game studios, where it's like, you shouldn't get too big. When you get too big, people yeah. come in who ruin the company and everything that was good about it. Like for example, Bioware. <laughs> like Bioware, and and <clears throat> you've watched the documentary. It nearly happened to CD Projekt Red. At some point, it will, mm. and it shouldn't. That's the thing. It will because we know it will because that's how the whole system works, and that's what the whole point of capitalism is. Uh, but no. it means that people who start off and do their thing I think inevitably, it... ultimately, end up bought out and dissolved. Yeah, but. It... I think it's just people have no self-restraint. They get delusions of grandeur and feel like, oh, this won't happen to me. Because we have many Mm. small companies that have been around since the 80s that are still doing what they do and they're constraining themselves. They don't allow themselves to go crazy. Like From Software, founded in 1986. Uh Uh-huh. They had like the most successful games ever with like the Dark Souls series, mm-hmm. and and instead of going crazy and like oh we're gonna hire three hundred people for our next yeah. game, they're just holding <laughs> themselves uh, like constrained like no let's not go crazy here let's just keep doing what we've been doing for so long so mm-hmm. it's like I want them to do use a new graphics engine but they're not <laughs> because they know better. <laughs> It's like, no, we're not going to spend, like, hundreds of millions and years on, like, a technological nightmare and then, like, oh, let's hunt, hire hundreds of people to 
do state-of-the-art graphics because like that doesn't play to the core of what they are interested in doing with their games instead it's like no let's just keep doing what we've been doing for decades it works uh let's not do this stupid thing everyone else does where it's like oh we're hiring hundreds of people we're making the company very fragile putting ourselves in a precarious position and now there's a lot of very nervous looking economists here who are doing a focus group testing <laughs> to ensure that our game is profitable and ruining the formula and putting in a bunch of economic tricks like microtransactions and stuff instead yeah. of just now let's how about we keep the scope of our teams small enough and just keep the budget low and like we're not gonna follow for the negative trends <laughs> yeah we'll do what works for us and so they keep doing it so they'll be around for if they keep doing what they're doing they'll probably be around for another 30 years and almost every big company that hires hundreds of people will probably be dead because uh, like how how do you sustain it like the activision yeah. style of like oh we have we used to have 20 games, 20 franchises. Now we have like, I don't know, four. Yeah. Uh, but we have like three times as many people employed for all our games. <laughs> yeah, you can't, can you? Yeah. Like, Watch Dogs. Like a thousand people made that game. Really? Yeah. God. How... And, it, and part of the problem is that we do, to an extent, as, as players, we do expect a sequel to be bigger and, quote, better than the previous one. And unfortunately, we've just reached this point now where that's no longer feasible because they were so big and good to begin with. Yeah, and I think there's been a stagnation in like in game design in, in big-budget titles because I feel like their definition of bigger and better isn't actually doesn't line up with what makes an interesting game. Yep. Their definition of bigger and better is like, oh, here's uh, 10 times the polygon amount and uh, yeah. much fancier motion capture systems. And like, they, oh, didn't this cost billions to make? But it's, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. it, it doesn't spark your imagination <laughs> as much as, uh, I don't know, Bloodborne. <clears throat> yeah. How, how many yeah. Bloodborns could you make for one watchdogs? <laughs> <laughs> probably 10 <laughs> anyway. um, I've got a little gaming topic that I, I think I ought to mention but I'll only mention it very briefly because otherwise I'll go on all day about it but as you know I've started I'm back on my Settlers BS again yeah <laughs> I've been I've been meaning to stream all the different Settler type games that I've got since I heard about streaming and since I had YouTube I've been thinking of doing YouTube videos about them or, or something and I've actually I've been people have been asking me to do it for like a year and I never did Settlers 2 because I was so there was so, there was a problem with compatibility I couldn't get OBS to recognize it at first but I've solved that and then there was that barrier where I'm like eh, I'm not really into Settlers 2 as much as Settlers 1 and eh. but as you saw I think you were there I very quickly just became quite obsessed with it what i thought was going to be about like an hour long stream became a three hour long stream and um i've done another one since like two days later i'm probably going to do one today or tomorrow i just yeah i'm uh i'm i'm back on it i'm afraid so there's going to be some settlers yeah <laughs> in my future sorry about that well, in advance <laughs> well i'm when i watched you stream settlers i was reminded that, oh yeah settlers it is just really nice <laughs> it is really nice that's the thing <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I kind of you you do get into this feeling of like, yeah, w- why was I obsessed with that, and like, what was I being mesmerized by? And then you go, no, it's nice. That's and it's important to have something nice. There, are, that's what I'm using these streams for. We've already talked about a lot of it today. Everyone's really stressed about a lot of stuff. And if I can go like, okay, but here's some little piggies and houses and some sheep and rabbits and here's little people sowing seed and reaping corn and stuff. It's just nice. Um, and so there you go. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. There's going to be Because my problem is I keep starting the wrong games to stream. I enjoyed it mm. a lot, but um, Yakuza was the wrong game to stream. Firstly, because it was all a lot of reading. Secondly, because... Um, it, you can't have the chat bar there if you're playing it on PlayStation for some reason. They've in that particular game they've managed to censor that, or not set, but you know what I mean. Switch it off. Um, and so yeah, that wasn't quite right. And now and then I'll hit upon a game that's not quite right. This is right. I can just dip into this. It doesn't really matter quite what's happening. There's it. It, it doesn't really matter if it's engaging. It's something gentle, and there's not a lot of that. So there we go really looking forward to getting back into streaming with settlers as my excuse yeah uh, and i'm just looking up now i think august is going to be one hell of a month because i, I pre-ordered both shenmue one and two and yakuza zero on pc and both of them are coming out in august so right august 1st is uh, the release date for yakuza zero so that's like uh well two and a half weeks yeah, and then uh, Shenmue 1 and 2 is uh, August 21. So that's uh, a bit longer. But uh, uh-huh. I mean, you don't want Yakuza 0 and Shenmue coming out at the same time. They're basically for the same people. So <laughs> Yeah. And is it like, is it in any way improved? Or is it just literally like an emulator and now you can play it on Steam? We have no idea. Uh, okay. The, the quality of either of the ports. No idea. So huh. it's like it, it was a gamble to pre-order them. <laughs> it might be because I think that it'll just be an, an exact port. Yeah, I think it, I don't think they'll have improved it at all or changed it at all, and I think it will. To I think it will turn out to be quite a challenge to get interested in because although the concept of Shenmue is is great and it really did sort of pave the way for a lot of what we think games are now. Part of it that was exciting at the time and has since been sort of removed and edited out. A little bit like how, you know, tank controls and things like that. We don't have those anymore because it was interesting at the time. But like, no, the thing about Shenmue was that it would be boring. And that was a revolution. That was like a huge deal that this game was going to be boring. That ordinary pedestrian life things would happen in it, like going down the shops and going to bed at a certain time and stuff like that. And I don't know, I think, and at the time that was like, wow, look what I'm doing. And that was exciting because of that. But now I think we're going to rally against it as players. And I, I don't think we're going to stand for it this time round. No, I think it's going to be good. <laughs> well, <laughs> when you say we as players, I think random unsuspecting people might have like a culture shock when they play it because it is yeah. a very strange game. Strange couple of games, especially the controls. Like, will they have modernized the controls, or will it still be that you hold R two to walk forward? <laughs> yeah. No, you're quite right. I shouldn't. I shouldn't say we as players and speak for other people, but I am. I'm talking for myself. I think that mm. I will have 
lost some of the patience that I had in those days because it wasn't patience. It was excitement then. Now it now it would be patience because I know that in a similar game like uh, Sleeping Dogs, I would never have to do any of the, the long, slow, tedious stuff and I would be able to get straight into the excitement. Yeah, but I think this is still going to be unconventional enough in its yeah. uh, like philosophical approach to have everything functions that it's still going to yeah. have... It might be boring, but you will still get sparks of like, oh, I remember this. This is like something you wouldn't do today because only a lunatic would put this in a game. And that will still yes. be exciting. Yes, and, and actually when you say that, only a lunatic would put this in a game. I think that at the time, whereas Shenmue was for the the sort of, uh, we're excited about the 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 ongoing march of technology crowd. Like, gosh, isn't it amazing that this can be because we were buying a Dreamcast. We were getting a console, and we'd been up till then used to like you know like the last popular games have been things like GoldenEye and Mario sixty four. And now we were having okay, what if the three D concept could be used to create a town in which people live and you live and it's a real world, but also there's a revenge plot going on. Is it? But how would that play out in real time of a person's life? And that was tremendously exciting. I think now it'll appeal to the deadly premonition crowd, that the sort of auteur-y, like weird RPG crowd. I think that's who are going to enjoy this this time round, and that's a that's a decently sizable crowd. Yeah, and I think something that I'm looking forward to experiencing again is what I remember of the story in Shenmue is that it had a clear like moral center and like the main character like has it's a it's a hero's journey but it's like no you have to learn to like let go of the revenge and like go after the villain for the correct reasons and it has oh to, I, I don't remember that but i'll take your word for it yeah where it's like you you can't go after him for like hatred and vengeance you have to kind of transcend that and become a more uh, zen <laughs> right and, and then you can go and kick his head in <laughs> yeah you have to defeat him for the correct reasons not for just revenge yeah uh, you have to like see the bigger picture of it and uh, not be uh, overtaken by the, the evil so yeah. because there's a hint that like basically the main character kills uh, his father is killed uh, because you know, kind of landy is after revenge and uh, if you can just went after Landy with his motivations, you'd be the same as him. So you have to yeah. kind of transcend that. And the way it plays out um, was very nice. Um, mm. I remember, especially how it continues in the second game and uh, how you have to prove that you have uh, all, all the virtues of a, of a good hero. <laughs> Perhaps I should play it again or at least watch a Let's Play of it or something. Because mm. as you know, I kind of checked out very quickly into Shenmue 2 because it was frankly too big for me and it was my first experience of a, of a game map that just was too big for me to learn to traverse maybe these days that wouldn't be the case anymore no it might feel smaller than you remembered but it, yeah it, it was very complex it was very complex there was a lot of density to it like the, yeah. your walking speed was generally slow because there was just so much fun stuff to take in and now what I'm hoping in the PC version, if they haven't done a disastrous job of it, you won't have the same slowdowns and uh, aggressive pop-in of stuff loading in. Oh, gosh, imagine if they fixed that. That would be great, yeah. Yeah. I didn't even consider that. Of course they could do that. Something tells me they won't do that, because I think this is just being spat out to 
so that when Shenmue 3, quote-unquote, comes out, <laughs> uh, which I, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, uh, yeah, and I'm... Wow, am I cautious about that. E- e- even though yeah. it, I did back the Kickstarter, I oh. loved Shenmue 2. I played yep. it through several times. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> Shenmue 3 just doesn't look great. <laughs> yeah, and and it has... So, and it's partly because of what has happened in gaming since. It seems silly to make Shenmue 3 now unless it's an all-out... Well, anyway, you know. So Yeah, what I'm hoping is that when we actually eventually play Shenmue 3, that there's a continuity where you can tell that it's still like uh, uh, Yu Suzuki, that his writing is still there, and you can tell that he's just continuing where he left off, and it... It's like uh, you're back and playing a Dreamcast game, except it's modern. Yeah, uh, that's what I'm hoping. We'll see. So it's not mighty number nine. Yeah, um, I'm at the. I'm now at the point where I don't know whether I will buy Shenmue three. And God, that's that would that would never have been possible. I don't know a decade ago or two. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I I already did it so years ago. So it's like well. It, it happened so long ago, it's like I did, almost didn't buy it because it's like something I paid how many years ago? <laughs> Four years? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you can just be a sensible person and wait for the reviews. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, what else is happening? Well, yeah, I mean, I've been playing the Kingsfield games. I mean, we've been talking for a while, so I could push this off for yet another week because I still haven't finished Kingsfield 3, but... What I'm interested here in, there's a story about From Software that hasn't been told, as far as I can tell. Because From Software, they were founded in 86, but their first game came out in 1994. Before that, they were like a productivity software company. And in the end credits for Kingsfield 1, there's like 20 people credited for a game that looks like it was made by three people. It has like two composers for a soundtrack that's terrible. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, why did From Software start making games? Yeah. Is this something they wanted to do all along? Is this Was this just an experiment to expand out? Like, oh, games are popular, let's make a game. Even yeah. though we make like, I don't know, spreadsheet software. <laughs> Is it just what happens when you have like coders in a room together does do, at some point does someone go hey why don't we make a game <laughs> yeah and like when did they make the decision to okay games are successful let's stop making productivity software and just focus entirely on games what happened to the people making spreadsheet software <laughs> yeah. Yeah. like there's, there's a transition here like a complete pivot from like one industry to another where it's like i don't know the microsoft office team starts uh, making the next halo game that's it's fascinating. <laughs> I mean, there must be a story. There must be something out there that tells you this. Yeah, probably in Japanese or something, because I tried to find this info, and there's uh, nothing. There's no big article about this. Instead, hmm. it's just people writing, oh, yeah, they were found in 86, and then in 1994, their first game came out. It's like, hold on. <laughs> there's a story <laughs> here you're not telling me. I went to all the niche sites. So anyway, if someone knows uh, about this, uh, please tell me. Although nobody listened to this, so nobody knows. Because like nobody cares about From Software's old games in general. Like people love 
the Souls series, but still, if you mention Kingsfield, most people's reaction is, what's that? <laughs> yeah, what is... <laughs> I, that's my reaction every time you bring it up. I keep forgetting what it was. I keep thinking it's like um, Mountain Blade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I can spoil one thing. Even though they're called Kingsfield, Kingsfield 3 was the first game with a field in it. So these are nonsensical titles. And this is a literal king's field because you're in a kingdom and it's a field and it's like, oh, this is the king's field. Finally. This is what the series has been building up to. So after King's Field 3, they uh, took the series on hiatus for five years. Well, what I would do if it was up to me is I would have it that after King's Field 3, they start to build on the King's Field. And it's like, I remember when all this was just King's Fields. But now it's, you know, castles and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> there's like a, a, a there's a good reason why they put the series on hiatus after Kingsfield Three because there's like a logical evolution between the, the three games that has made them very enjoyable to play and it makes sense. Like the first game, you're in only like a dungeon in like a cave and it's like five floors and then the game's over. In the second game, you're on a complete island and it's a big like interconnected. From software souls style level design, you can feel like yeah. already in the second game that came out six months after the original game. Like, here's a reminder in the 90s, you could release a game in December and release the sequel in June. <laughs> <laughs> like, six months is like the a concept uh, like stage for a game now and back then that was the entire development cycle for a game that's like i don't know 15 hours long yeah because <laughs> you made an entire game there and the second game is a huge improvement over the first yeah. one and and uh, for second game yeah it's an island there are no fields in it but it's like a bunch of caves and a very different style it's like metroid style um or Souls style, where you keep uh, unlocking more and everything is interconnected. And then in the third one, they expanded it out. So now you're in, like, instead of a, you got, went from a cave to an island, and now it's a continent with uh, multiple uh, countries. So it's like, ooh. And after that, they stopped. And then they made other game series. Because they felt like, where do we take this from here? We've ha- we, we did the Kingsfield. We made all our hopes and dreams come true. We did the title drop, so we're done. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have, a, like, that restraint, restraint. You don't see that anymore. And nowadays, it's like, oh, you you make one game, and now you have to keep making that game for 10 years. Here it was like, well, we worked on this series for two years, and now we're moving on to a different franchise. <laughs> make three games in two years. Anyway, I want to kind of get back... I would like it if game developers went back to that model a bit where it's like, make games really fast and like, sure, there will be pieces of crap to some extent, but some of the most masterful classics of the genre were made astonishingly quickly compared to today. (laughs) And are still held up compared to like newer games. (laughs) Like, so... Yeah, and anyway. not just when, and not just in the the really early era where you know there was no presentation or anything, but like mm. yeah, like quite a quite a bit into the whole process of making video games, they were still. It's, it's. I don't know what to do about it because I don't want to yeah. never have like realistic looking games again. 
Um, but I personally don't care about them, so I'm happy to have ones that... Oh, we've said this before. I'd be happy to if all the games looked like they were like 16-bit. That's fine. Yeah, <laughs> because they had like a focus on what you actually care about in a game, where that can be diluted and lost because the costs of making high-fidelity graphics is so costly in time and money and effort. Like, that's really the challenge for games going forward, I feel like. How, how do you get back to like a 90s cycle, time cycle of making games? Because that... that feels more healthy not just like economically but like mentally for creators as well you shouldn't be working on the same game for six years like making a game should yeah. it should be as fast as making a movie <laughs> well how many how fast do they make movies i don't know i don't know uh, a benchmark would be like i don't know star wars uh, movies yeah yes but they have an incredible amount of budget don't they presumably yeah. it- the thing, it's slightly different with movies. I don't think it's too too close a comparison because, you know, you get your actors together and you film it and then the the bulk of the work is done, like, editing and putting the sound soundtrack on and things. Like, maybe animated movies is a better comparison because there someone has to, like, actually put all of it together. Yeah. It, I don't know. It just seems like a, it seems like a, a closer comparison. Hmm. Whereas those, those have gone from where it used to take five years to make one now they're done in a, a year or but then those aren't the very good ones yeah but it's that, a couple that, of years that should be more standard like there, there was a time when people made games in a year and yeah they were state-of-the-art at the time but then yeah. as console generations rolled around there was like a, a geometric increase and in the amount of uh, people you needed to make a game where it's like oh we Last generation, we could make a game with thirty people. Now we need one hundred and twenty people. <laughs> like, whoops. Speaking of uh, indie games mm. looking like sixteen bit, by the way, I'm I'm very excited about the upcoming sequel to Retro City Rampage. I thought that was a really good game, and uh, they're they're now working on a a SNES looking one, which doesn't have an official release date, but apparently it's coming out this year. If you type in, it's called Shakedown Hawaii, and if you type in Shakedown Hawaii release date. It tells you on Google right at the top quite confidently that the release date is last May, which it wasn't. Um, <laughs> but apparently it's coming out sometime this year, and I really want it. <laughs> yeah, it looks pretty nice. Yeah. By the way, Dave, the uh, a new computer was announced this week that uh, might be of interest to you. I'm sorry, a new computer? Yes, the Surface Go. Oh. It's a Surface. Sure. And it's uh, there's two versions of it. The low end version is 380 pounds, and the high what? end version is 510 pounds. What? There's, That's super cheap. Yeah, there's, so there's two skews of it, and it has this screen that you can draw on. Yeah, and uh, they you can be upcharged by buying the a type cover for it. But apart from that, it has the kickstand and. Uh, it's apparently decent. The journalists who have used it said, well, this, this is pretty good. <laughs> good so what's, quality. The, what's the catch? Why are they releasing it so cheap? It uh, has a slower processor, and uh, the very cheapest version has uh, really slow internal storage. But uh, the uh, more expensive version has like an SSD, and they're just targeting uh, a lower-end market with this because they felt like, well, PC makers aren't doing this properly, so uh, we should do it instead. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, because you you have an interest in low end computing, so I felt like, well, <laughs> it's like made for you. <laughs> I do well. I do well. I've pretty much solved that problem. But uh, yeah, for yes, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say no to something that I can run the old manga studio on. Yeah. Which is all I which is all I do, do my comic with. I don't need anything fancy and high end at all. Yeah. For... Well, well, well. That's really interesting. Yeah. So for the drawing uh, quality on this, like. For the newer Surface uh, version, like the fifth generation Surface, they added like uh, pixel acceleration ships on it. So it's like they, they, there's less delay when you draw for the, uh, the lines appearing on screen. So they sheeped out on this by not having it. But the thing is, the drawing performance on this would be exactly the same as the Surface Pro 4. Yeah. Like the one you already have, because that didn't yeah. have that uh, additional ship. So. Right. This is just like that. <laughs> wow. Yeah, th this is what I was wondering, actually. Yeah, because the, they've moved on so much since Abby's tablet that that this I was wondering where this stacked up against it. If it's a low-end one, well, so is the one that we consider the high-end one. <laughs> because yeah. Abby's one is absolutely great. Like, I can't think of a single... I, she's never mentioned anything being wrong with it at all. So, yeah. And I uh, linked you the uh, Microsoft site for it. And Great. I guess the only visual negative thing about it is like, oh, the bezels look a bit big. But uh, okay. that's about it. Apart from that, it's apparently a magnesium chassis like the other ones. And uh, the screen is a bit smaller, but yeah, that's about it. Apart from that, it's just a surface. And apparently their they're build, the general reliability of them has gone up because they... With Surface 3 and 4, they had some problems like, I don't know, SSD drives dying. But uh, with the last one, uh, the 50 end one, apparently there's been no major problems at all. They kind of ironed that out. So maybe this one should be super stable as well. Great. So yeah, that's, that's coming out in uh, August. It does look, and this is kind of possibly a good thing, but it does look very small, which might make it tricky to use as an art tablet. Um, but yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's a 10-inch screen, so it should be a little bit bigger than, like, a normal iPad. Yeah. Whereas I think the uh, Surface 4 and 5 is, like, uh, 12, 13-inch screens. They've honestly... Microsoft really have knocked it out of the park with Surface. It's, it is a good... It's a good machine. Yeah. <laughs> They've done well. Yeah. I, I feel like with this one, it's like, well, if someone wants, like, a portable, compact PC, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because <laughs> like almost everything at this price point is a piece of crap anyway. So yeah. this is like just equally bad tech-wise, uh, like <laughs> speed-wise, as everything else on the price point, except it's actually nicely built and well designed. Yeah. <laughs> so, you got Ooh. anything more? Should we? Uh, should we go away? Ah, I'm being flown around by a very aggressive fly. Um, I can't think of anything else. Oh, I'll tell you what, I'll mention one last thing about TV watching. We have been watching Prime Suspect, a long-running, I think, ITV uh, crime show starring Helen Mirren. It's the reason I've heard of Helen Mirren. I don't really know, who, uh, like, what her original thing she was famous for was, but to me it was this. I've never seen it before. It's just very famous. So we finally started watching it. It starts, like, in about 1990, and they do them very rarely. They're very long. So you'll get like in 1990 or whenever it started around then, you'll get 
two episodes that are both an hour and a half each and they're one story so it's like a really long film cut in half and then um and then they'll do another one four years later and another one of those four years later and so we're, we're only on season six five or six at the moment and we're already in 2006 um and it's really interesting because of course it's like actors that you've that you now know who they are and you're seeing them in stuff sort of before they were famous essentially um and it's good it's a good crime show the only downside is that the uh, the first one uh, episode stroke series however you want to think about it is really exceptionally good and then the whole creative team has changed after that so it's like apart from you know helen mirren so it's it varies and i would say if anyone's listening and wondered about watching a crime show i'd say watch the first one watch the fourth one watch the fifth one so um is it the fourth one and fifth well anyway watch the first one skip a couple and then join back in again uh because yeah the the, the second and third are a little bit boring but then it gets good again and they're not connected to each other plot wise uh oh hang on it's the first one yeah the fifth one and the sixth one there is a seventh one haven't watched it yet can't vouch for it i'll tell you another week yeah the end bye bye